Turn back with me this morning to Mark chapter 15. We're going to take two weeks to look at uh, this passage, uh, a few different themes, important teachings, and implications of uh, this passage uh, describing the crucifixion of our Lord. Uh, I'm going to read verse 21 through 39. Here this morning. So hear God's holy infallible word. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Divided him, divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you are who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. We'll end our reading there this morning. Well, in this world under the curse for sin, uh, it's just a truism that renewal and hope and life often come through dark suffering, even death. We can think of Simple examples of that, a plant has to die for its seeds to germinate and life to come again in the spring. We think of much harder examples of that. Uh, Recovery or life from cancer often only comes from the death of the cancer cells through excruciating treatment that kills many good cells as well. uh, We think of World War II is only through absolute horrors of D-Day or the Battle of the Bulge that and and incalculable suffering and death that um, freedom came to Europe and a measure of peace and hope. The same is true in the life of Jesus and the life that he gives. Um, His death, only his death, gives life and hope. Uh, Why is that? Why did did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he have to die? Uh, Many many people say that Jesus' death uh, was simply uh, a good example for us. It was an example of sacrificial love and willingness for others. Uh, It's certainly not less than that, but that's completely inadequate biblically. Humanity is 
in great need of far more than just a nice example of being nice. Um, we're going to study Cal- John Calvin later this morning in our class. Here's how Calvin puts our need. For God, who is the highest righteousness, cannot love the unrighteousness that he sees in us all. All of us, therefore, have in ourselves something deserving of God's hatred and judgment. With regard to our corrupt nature and the wicked life that follows it, all of us surely displease God, are guilty in his sight, and are born to the damnation of hell. Because of that reality, uh, forgiveness, renewal, life can only come through judgment, can only come through death. I want to offer Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 this morning as a sort of companion passage to uh, Mark 15 here, explaining why Jesus willingly died. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want you to consider this morning the cross as a a great judgment of God against sin, uh, but also uh, the greatest display of the love of God uh, in history. And, and like the difference between uh, just a, a training exercise and a, an actual real-life rescue, say, the cross was not just an example, not just a training uh, for, for being sacrificially nice and loving, uh, but it actually accomplished salvation, actually accomplished true hope uh, and assurance of God's love for you and life for you. As we come to this central event in scriptures, we read about what is really the ultimate public um, spectacle of shame and deterrence for criminals and hated criminals in, in the Roman Empire in the ancient world. That's crucifixion. Crucifixion is often, uh, the victim was often hung up naked um, and often in a very public place by a, by a busy road was, was common so that many could see and they hung there in, in excruciating, prolonged pain for days. Um, it was really reserved for the most hated and lowly people in the Roman Empire. It wasn't just anyone who could be crucified, uh, no matter what they did. We're told Jesus was taken to, at uh, verse 22, to Golgotha. This is the name of the place. Uh, it's the King James that uses the word Calvary, which is a, the Greek transliterated into Latin, transliterated into English. It's kind of a convoluted name. So the, the, the original name is, is Golgotha uh, for the place. Uh, verse 25, again, I'll just point out that um, uh, Mark is simply not interested, with the other gospel writers, is not interested in sensationalizing all kinds of details of what crucifixion was outwardly. Um, three simple words out of our about 20 verses this morning. And they crucified him, uh, is all he has to say. We're told that it happened at the third hour. That's uh, 9 a.m. by their reckoning. Uh, there are also in this passage a number of, of explicit fulfillments of prophecy. Uh, the casting lot of lots for his clothes, uh, offering some kind of sour wine uh, multiple times. The, the specific taunts that we hear of Jesus, and even Jesus' own words, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, from Psalm 22. Uh, all of these things and more are from Psalm 22, Psalm 69. Uh, anticipate very specifically Jesus' suffering here. Jesus, and again, endures more mockery 
and derision. The, in our verse 29, the wagging of heads, that's what that is. That, that's a sort of middle finger of the ancient Middle East um, of, of disgust and derision towards someone. Uh, so this is what's happening to Jesus, what everyone else is doing. What is, what is God doing here? Uh, what is this scene in, in God's plan of redemption? Well, I want you to see first, as you see on your outline, it's a display of God's judgment. It's a display of God's judgment. One of the ways that God makes this clear, uh, made it clear at the time and, and to us, is verse 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The darkness. Uh, the other gospel writers tell us there's also an earthquake. So earthquake and darkness. Um, from noon until 3 o'clock. Uh, three hours of complete darkness. Um, it's been suggested by some, maybe this was a solar eclipse. Um, the Passover was always held at full moon. The full moon determined when Passover was. Um, and we know now that eclipses only happen on a new moon, the other end of the moon's cycle. That doesn't seem possible. Eclipses also last only for a few minutes, not, not three hours. But, and also, interestingly, this, this darkness seems to be corroborated by a couple of extra-Christian sources uh, as well. A Greek historian Flagin, who was no Christian, not promoting Christ in any way, uh, was writing a history about 100 years later in, 100, in 137 A.D., uh, and he writes this. He says, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that's the year 33, when we believe is the year that, that Jesus was crucified, he says there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. It became night in the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. So the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. So interestingly, this, this Greek historian is saying back 100 years ago, there was this greatest eclipse that anyone's ever seen at noon, accompanied by an earthquake. Um, there, there's also another historian, even earlier, Thallus, uh, who wrote uh, a history of the region in the year 57, so just a couple decades after this event happened, who notes a great darkness at the same time. Um, he also calls it an eclipse, um, um, but again, it seems that's not uh, possible given what's described here. It's a supernatural darkness. So what does it point to? Uh, why the darkness? Well, it seems it would point us clearly to what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. The Old Testament anticipates over and over the day of the Lord. It's, it's a phrase that points to a future uh, judgment of God, God's coming in judgment against evil, a sort of indefinite day of God coming in judgment. And, and it's not just one day. There are various different events that were a day of the Lord, a judgment against Babylon or a judgment against Egypt, all pointing to the final judgment that we still await. But listen, for example, to Amos chapter 8, verse 9, especially this verse, Amos 8, 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It seems a clear pointer to this day that Jesus died as a, a, a day of God visiting in judgment against evil. Uh, Joel chapter 2 also describes God's judgment in, in these terms. The earth quakes. The sun and the moon are darkened. Uh, Zephaniah 1 is another example. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness, of clouds and thick darkness. So it seems clear God brought literal darkness here as, as Jesus died to make clear this is a final 
hellish judgment of God against evil. This is a, a day of the Lord, if you will. But, but we might stop and, and wonder, wait, doesn't it seem that evil is winning here? Right? Jesus is, is losing. It's not the enemies of God that are being judged as on the, the day of the Lord. Well, this is the day of the Lord falling on one man, on Jesus. Right? As, as he was being counted as the sinner, he's bearing the sins of all of his people for all of history. And God's judgment is, is coming on him. We read about this earlier in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the darkness points to that. Now listen to how future judgment is described in the book of Revelation. Uh, this is Revelation 6, the seven seals. These seven seals are open sequentially, the unfolding of, of history, uh, the future of history. The sixth seal says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Again, there's earthquake, darkness, the full moon. Revelation, uh, the passage goes on. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So here's, here's two great judgments in the New Testament of, of evil, both accompanied by earthquake and darkness. Um, Jesus himself warned about such a a judgment in the future when people would just call on the mountains to fall on them rather than, than facing this judgment. Um, Paul says this is what our sins deserve. Right? The wages of sin is death. What sins deserve is, is death. All sin is rebellion against God. It, it deserves his justice, his punishment. And so the cross is an incredible picture of, of how sinful sin is. This is the judgment of God against sin. This this is how great the judgment of God is, the, the, seen in the horrors of the cross, seen even more in that, the necessity of the death of the Son of God, the innocent Son of God. And, and the point is to, to look at yourself. Are you still in your sin? Are you still guilty of the pride and selfishness and lies and evil thoughts and stealing and lusting and coveting and all the ways that humans live against the, the character and the law of God? And, and the question I want to pose is, which judgment is yours? That, that one described in Revelation, that, that earthquake and darkness where people are calling the mountains to fall on them because they face the Lamb, because they face Jesus and His judgment? Will you face him at the end of history and pay for your sin? Or do you believe in Jesus as your Savior on whom the wrath of God fell for sin 2,000 years ago on the cross? God is a just God. Just, just as we, you know, we're, we're coming into elections here in a few weeks, uh, we elect leaders and judges and confirm judges and, and so on, we expect them to hand out justice, including punishment for people who do Wicked things. We expect that of them. How much more is that true of God? 
The day of the Lord comes against all sin and evil one day and will set everything right. But that, that day fell on Jesus on the cross for all those who receive him as their Savior and Lord. That's why the Bible can say definitively to Christians, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10. There are another powerful evidence that this is Jesus standing in the place of sinners, receiving the just punishment for their sin. It's verse 34 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even, even though Jesus is fully God, he's, he and the Father are one through all of eternity. Their, their, their unity and love, is, is we, we can't even comprehend it, yet he, separ- he senses separation, the abandonment of his Father in this judgment. Again, my question is, which, which judgment is yours? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in, in his book, The Great Divorce, that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who uh, say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, thy will be done. Right? Those who submit themselves to God's verdict and judgment and receive his grace, thy will be done. And those to whom God leaves them to their will to their sin. Thy will be done. To reject your need for a savior from sin and and Jesus as that savior now is to choose to face him and that that last great day. Uh, Many people don't believe that day is coming. They they mock the idea of any kind of a judgment of a God. There's a common bumper sticker maybe you've seen. Don't worry, non-judgment day is coming. When the day of the Lord comes, will you be paying for your sins forever? Or will you have been forgiven in the blood of Jesus? Secondly, paradoxically, this great display of judgment is also at the same time the greatest possible display of God's love. We've noted all along in the last few weeks Jesus' willingness through his, uh, this this last week, through his uh, trial, uh, through his death here on the cross, his silence, not fighting the call to be a, a sacrifice for sin, but, but also, and, and as we read all of the gospel accounts, and I'm going to put them all together a little bit here, we, we see all along his concern primarily for others throughout this whole ordeal. We, we've seen his, his concern for his disciples, uh, the night of his arrest, teaching them, warning them, praying for them. Uh, loving them, sharing the Lord's Supper with them. Uh, we see in the, in the other Gospels the, his concern for the women who are following him uh, as he's on his way to Golgotha. We, we read of the love he shows in, in Luke, for example, in Matthew, for the, the criminal who's crucified next to him, who was mocking him. We, we see it in his prayer for his killers. Again, not here in, in Mark, but Jesus prays, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. There's not a hint of hatred or revenge. This is a willing suffering for anyone who would receive him as Savior. Is that, is that guessing at Jesus' attitude, that it's an attitude of love, despite what he's enduring? Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or again, Galatians 20, we, we also read earlier this morning. The life I live in the flesh, I live by, the face of the, the, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And, and even more than these important moving anecdotes towards individuals, towards his mother, towards uh, the disciples, the criminal on the cross, is just considering the scene, the love of, of God the Father seen in it. Right? He's not sparing his son for you. The, the love and union of the Father and the Son is perfect, eternal. It's in, ineffable. We can't know it, can't comprehend it. And yet the Father was willing to forsake his Son. We, we think of the love of Jesus for all of his people in this scene. I can't think of a more powerful, painful temptation, and, and, and I, I encourage you to think about it, to wrestle with it, but, and, and I'm sure my understanding doesn't even scratch the surface of, of what, it, what it was, but a more powerful or painful temptation than that in that moment for Jesus to vindicate himself. If we really understand the, the injustice of this and the identity of Jesus, to prove himself, to curse these men, to offer some defense at least, or simply to, to quit, to actually call down 72,000 angels, there would be nothing unjust about any of those responses for Jesus. And so consider this why did Jesus stay on the cross? What kept him on the cross? We read in the other gospel accounts, there were, you know, there were nails put into his hands and feet to hold him to the cross. It wasn't nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It wasn't the soldiers standing around with, with their swords. It wasn't that he looked around and, and saw his perfectly loyal friends and thought, you guys are just so worth it. They were wretched, unfaithful sinners, as we've been reading for the last two years, like you and me. It wasn't guilt or weakness that kept him on the cross. It was simply love that kept Jesus on the cross. Love is why he stayed on the cross. His, his loving obedience to his father, his, his love for you, his people. I want to turn to two other events uh, for this week, and we'll look at more of this passage again in, uh, in a couple weeks here, but two illustrating events, it, kind of illustrating the meaning and the power of Jesus' death here. Uh, so first, a, a final verdict, looking at verse 37 and 38, 38 particularly. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the curtain that separated the, the Holy of Holies in the temple from everyone, from everyone else. No one could go in. That, that symbolic throne of God in there. Uh, only the high priest alone went in once a year. And he went in year after year after year with the blood of sacrifice to symbolize the need for, for cleansing, to come into God's presence, the need for mercy and atonement. But at the moment of Jesus' death, that, that thick, tall, huge curtain was torn from top to bottom. Uh, symbolizing full access now to God, full forgiveness and pardon for sin, and full acceptance as, as children of God. Uh, no longer was there needed this, this symbolic separation from God and, and the, the symbolic accessing God through a priest. There's full access and full acceptance through Christ. It's another event, interestingly, possibly attested outside of uh, the scriptures outside of Christian sources. So the Jewish historian Josephus interestingly refers to the, the temple doors being mysteriously opened by themselves at a Passover in some year. He doesn't name the year. 
Um, and so it's been speculated maybe maybe he got the details a little wrong, door or curtain, maybe changed the details a little to make it more plausible, um, a door opening rather than a curtain splitting. But anyways, um, just another interesting historical reference. Think about the significance of that, that curtain tearing in this way. The gospel accounts are so concerned that we see Jesus as the Passover lamb. So of course, the day of Passover, but that we, we see him that way. And in, in part, the, the Passover lamb was to be inspected it was to be without blemish. There was a lamb staked out in Jerusalem for, for anyone, all the pilgrims, to see, to inspect. And, and Jesus is inspected. Uh, he comes in after the triumphal entry, and there's, there's this grilling by the Sadducees and by the Pharisees, all, all these groups, one after another. The conclusion is they have nothing else to ask him or answer him. He answers perfectly. And then the, the Sanhedrin fail to come up with a single credible witness against him. And then Pilate... Uh, again, it's uh, more in the other Gospels than in Mark, but Pilate over and over again says, this man is innocent. We should let him go. And then God's own verdict as Jesus dies here, the tearing of the curtain. See, this is God's verdict, along with the earthquake and the darkness, the, pointing to the finality, the finished work of Jesus. Sins are paid for. It is finished. And of course, that, that's most emphatically uh, confirmed in the resurrection. But there's nothing more for you to do but, but to confess your sin and believe and receive him. That's what the tearing of the curtain symbolizes in part. There, there's no penance, no level of holiness you need to reach, no purgatory you need to pay. Just believe that Jesus paid for your sins, that God welcomes you into his family. There's another event that, that points to this, again, uh, referencing the other Gospels here, that, that teaches about what, what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. That's his interaction with the criminal that, that died next to him. There were two of them. They both started out taunting him. Then one is humbled and speaks to Jesus in faith. And you remember what Jesus said to the criminal? He said, well, that's nice, buddy, but you've made a mess of your life. Right? I, I can't know if you're sincere. You really need to clean yourself up, make amends for all your wrongs, and transform your life. But, you know, it's kind of too late. You're hanging here on the cross. You're going to have to go to purgatory for a millennia or so, and then I'll see you in heaven. No, of course, that's not what he said. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Doesn't that destroy any idea? Just that simple little story destroy any idea that we contribute anything to our salvation, that we have to become anything to be received by Christ. It, it refutes the central perversion of the gospel by the Roman Catholic Church, right? That you have to do penance in this life. You have to go to purgatory. You have to become righteous. You have to pay for your sins. You have to become worthy with the help of Jesus' grace to be saved. In other words, to, just to believe simply that central teaching of Rome on the gospel is, is to very clearly reject Jesus, to reject the gospel, because it's you become worthy. Now, Jesus' work is finished and final on the cross. The gospels go to great lengths in other ways to point to the finality of what Jesus accomplished. He really died. The soldiers confirmed it. Pilate was amazed by it. He was really buried. The women saw him buried. 
Paul gives you assurance that Jesus died and paid for your sins, really. That Jesus loved his people to the end, to the point of death on a cross. Hebrews 10 describes the the blessed assurance that that should give to you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have full assurance of faith. The second, um, second event here, letter B in your outline, a first conversion. Verse 39 is about the centurion. A centurion was a Roman officer over 100 soldiers, and it's supposed that he was maybe in charge of this operation. Right? He was in charge of making sure Jesus was crucified. Surely he was aware of the charges against Jesus. Jesus claims to be the Son of God, to be divine, to be the Messiah. Mark tells us he was standing right in front of Jesus. He had a, he had a, first, a front row seat, if you will, to all that happened here, all that Jesus said and did. And it says, when he saw the way Jesus breathed his last. Luke, the way Luke has it is when he saw what happened. In other words, when the, when the centurion in the front row seat saw all that took place as Jesus was dying, what, what did he see? Well, he saw the, the darkness, which had to have been unnerving, uh, the earthquake. He saw Jesus care for his mother while he's hanging on the cross, John tells us. He saw Jesus' loving promise to the criminal on the cross who'd been ridiculing him, as Matthew tells us. He saw just Jesus' quiet, calm submission to his father, his prayer. And maybe more than anything else, He heard, again referencing the other Gospels, Jesus' prayer for him. Jesus' prayer for his murderers. Father, forgive them. And the centurion concluded, truly this man was the son of God. Luke adds that he also said, surely this man was innocent. Now what what exactly was the centurion saying? What did he understand? We don't know exactly. At least he was saying, what have we done? We can't know if he was fully converted or if this was a fully you know, a theological confession of the Son of God, but maybe it was. At least he's saying this man was innocent. This man was from God doing the work of God. And we've killed him. The centurion becomes, at least in some sense, the first person in the whole gospel, first person in history to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, in his suffering, because of his suffering. We have Peter's great confession earlier, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But then Peter goes on to prove multiple times that this very suffering of Jesus is is a stumbling block for him. He He doesn't get it. He doesn't see Jesus as the Son of God in his suffering. The centurion becomes the first one. In his suffering. What an incredible example of God's mercy, of, of heart transforming power and love of God in the cross. That, that the man who's leading the murder of Jesus, perhaps, becomes the first Christian convert. This is sort of a poke in the eye of Satan, right? His tool of death 
here this century and recognizes in the darkness and the innocence and love of Jesus from his front row seat that, that he was wrong, that this was the Son of God. It's also, it's also an answer to Jesus' prayer that we read in the other Gospels. Just like that, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Jesus wasn't praying. Jesus wasn't forgiving them all, just sort of waving his hand. He was praying that they would believe that they would be forgiven, that this would be their judgment for sin and their faith. And, and it happens incredibly in the centurion. Powerfully unexpected conversions in answer to that prayer would, would continue to come in, in the weeks and months ahead. There's this incredible statement in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of who? A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests. These are the ones that are plotting all along to kill Jesus. His accusers, his mockers, the ones who stirred up the crowd to say, crucify him. He came to faith in this crucified Savior. How does this encourage your faith, that, that particularly what happens to the centurion here? Just a couple of ways as we close. Anyone can come to Jesus and receive mercy. Right? Even the Gentile centurion who killed Jesus can be transformed and know Jesus as the Son of God. And, and related to that, secondly, it gives hope to us in our witnessing. Right? How powerful is the gospel if the centurion can be transformed? Anyone you witness to can be changed by the grace of God, right? Can become like that centurion standing in front of the cross and, and have their hearts softened and see Jesus as their needed, compassionate Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you would apply to our minds and our lives what we've read and heard this morning. Use your word, this account of your just judgment and incomparable, massive love uh, to create in us real trust and real assurance and real humility and love for others. Help us to comprehend your power and love in the cross. We thank you uh, for giving your son. We pray in his name. Amen.